family? Happy New Year. I heard y'all had a guest preacher last week. Was he good? I was waiting to hear. I heard he also didn't get the memo on how long to preach. Is that true too? That's true, huh? Okay. So uh, if, you're, if you're new to church and if you've been to church, usually church culture is go 45 to an hour and a half for preaching. Y'all were like, holy smokes. Just look at your face. So y'all, y'all get blessed each week that we condense into a 30-minute message. You know, it's kind of like getting in concentrate. You know, you concentrate. That's kind of how we normally operate. Well, evidently somebody didn't give uh, John the, the memo, go for 30, bro. So here's the secret, by the way. If I'm away and you get a guest preacher, make sure they drink a lot of coffee before they preach. At some point, they got to get down and go to the bathroom, okay? That's how you usually regulate the preacher, okay? At some point, their teeth start floating. They'll stop preaching, okay? That's reality. Hey, if you're new, it's your first time in the church. Hey, make sure you take some time to follow the Connect card and let us know who you are. There's also a special gift for you at the Welcome Center. We'd love for you to go by and get there and get that. It's just something we want to bless you with. Also, um, really complicated notes today. Y'all see them? Yeah, it's notes, okay? So interesting message. So I wasn't supposed to be here today. Pastor Danny says, dude, everybody is sick. Everybody's getting sick. There's all kinds of stuff flying around. He goes, and I'm better, but I'm not sure my voice is gonna be back to the point to preach. He says, should I get another guest preacher? I said, well, I heard they love John so much, get him back. And Danny said, no, I don't think that's a good uh, strategy. I said, I'll preach, don't worry about it. So I've decided to do something I've never done before. Um, normally, if you're, if you're new, I don't want to scare you away. Normally, we just open up a passage from the Bible. We're going to dig deep into it and look at it and see what God has to share with us. But one of the things I wanted to do that I've never had a chance to do with the church body before is to talk about why we have the Bible. Where did it come from? Um, why should I trust it? Why should I not trust it? Uh, when I talk to my friends and they ask me about things like, well, how do we get this collection of books? Because if, if you're not familiar, uh, the Bible is not one book. This might surprise you. The Bible is actually a collection of books. Where's Pastor Danny? I love to pick on him with this. How many, Pastor Danny? 66. <laughs> so Pastor Danny's bright. Don't, don't get me wrong. He is sharp. But when you have your ordination council and people examine you, you get nervous and say all kinds of things. And so Pastor Danny, I think, went with 67. He wanted to add a book back in, which we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about some of the books that got left out. Why did they get left out? You know, how can we trust it? So, so one of the things I want to do with this series was just kind of have fun with it. Now, why is this series important or this message important? And how does it fit into your life and mine? Well, I think a lot of us are going to run into people at some point or not that they're going to have trust issues with scripture. Maybe you even have at some point. You've read something, you're like, man, that's kind of goofy, weird. You know, like they're ripping birds apart and sacrificing them. I don't know what to do with that, you know, or I'm reading something. I'm like, that's kind of harsh or this doesn't seem to gel up. Or maybe you find something that's what we would call an apparent contradiction in scripture. It says one thing here, it says another thing here. How do I put those together? How does that work out? These are like normal questions that you should never be afraid to ask especially in church. Um, I want you to know you'll never get judged for asking a question in church. You'll never get judged for asking a question to me. All questions are okay. Any questions okay on the table. Uh, we want to be able to help you in your journey, navigate your personal journey with God, and I especially want to help you navigate your journey with scripture. Now, why is this important? Well, here's some of the normal questions I think everybody asks. They're asked this question. Does God love me? And how do I know him? Like, not just... God's out there, but how do I know him personally, intimately? How does God reveal himself? How do I really know who he really is? You know, how do we even begin that process 
of addressing that. And most people are going to say, they're going to point you to the Bible and go, well, read this, right? And then you're asking the question, why should I read that? How did it come into my hands? Now, I'm going to give you some terms, and I'm going to try not to get too eggheaded. If I get too eggheaded, here's, here's the key. If I say something over your head, and you're like, that's eggheaded, that's a geeky thing, just go like this, okay? It means you, you missed the mark, you're a loser, boil that down to something simpler for me, okay? And that's okay. So I'm going to try to explain away some of these complicated terms and words about the scriptures. So the first one you're going to hear is a word called canon. Now, when you hear canon, what do you think of? Boom. That's what I think of, too. Boom, right? So canon, with one end is the idea that a group of something is put together and it's a source document. It actually comes from an ancient Hebrew word uh, from the word cane. And the cane means like a cane pole and it means like a measuring stick. Anybody have a mother that beat them with a yardstick? Okay, if you cut the yardstick down, it's no longer a yardstick, is it? It's something else, okay? Probably a better tool in her hands. That's a different problem. But that yardstick is a measure. That's the idea of the word cannon. It means it's a measuring stick by which I measure something. And so when we say the word Old Testament, first half of the Bible, canon, or we say New Testament, second half of the Bible, canon, what we're actually talking about is it's a measuring stick to measure something. What are we trying to measure? Well, we're trying to measure the truth of who God is, that God has revealed himself but we need a measuring stick by which to measure that. Because if you've been in church any amount of time or you've been checking out your faith for a while, you've probably run into some goofy stuff that doesn't seem to measure up, right? Doesn't take long. How do I, how do I decide what measures up, what doesn't measure up? Well, we're gonna go through that and we're gonna go through it specifically with scripture. So I was hanging out with my boy one day. My, my son is a major comic book fan. Any big comic book people? A few of you? Okay. So I didn't know that the term canon could be used in a comic book setting. So I'm talking to my son, and I grew up, you know, during the 80s, you know, in the later 70s. And one of the coolest things that came out in that era was Superman. Anybody with me? Superman was the bomb, right? And all the movies that came out in the 80s were just, they were so cool. So I developed my idea of who Superman is by watching the 80s movies, right? Some of you that are older than me, you probably remember the TV show, Right? with his daddy, okay? And that you probably developed your idea of who Superman is based on that show, okay? So I'm talking to my son one day who is a fanatic in comic books and I begin to tell him about who Superman is and he tells me I'm wrong. It's not good to tell your dad they're wrong, especially the way he does. So how do you figure I'm wrong? I've watched all the Superman movies. He says, dad, the comic books are the canon for Superman. And I'm like, that boy just used a theological term on me about it with a comic book. And it freaked me out at first. But what I realized was he was saying, the standard by which to understand who Superman is comes from the people that first wrote about him. The people that created the character Superman. This is exactly the same principle you're trying to do with scripture. Who wrote the scriptures? How do I find a measuring stick or a rod? How do I know what's true and should be in there? How do I know what shouldn't be there? Of these 66 books, how did I get them? I brought some fun stuff. Um, this is my mom's Bible. Isn't that cool? So this is the Bible my mom used. It's a King Jimmy. Anybody know what King Jimmy means? King James. These thou's, there's cool words in there like awful, which means fat between the organs, all kinds of cool things like that in this thing. Mammon, which has nothing to do with animals. It means money. I mean, so it's a different kind of thing. And when she had this, there are people out there that tell you this is the best canon that there is. They'll say this is the measuring rod by which that we measure scripture. And then for those of you that are at our church and you get to study with me, I've grown up with this one. 
This is the NIV, what year, Danny? 84, I don't even like the later versions. I like the 84, this is when I learned them. And, and a lot of people that I've grown up would say, well, this is, this is better. But what you don't realize, and this is why I want to show you some of these things, is all of these are actually not the source document. Did you know that? All of these are derived from Greek manuscripts that we've kept throughout history. And we don't have the original, what's called autograph. So if, I, if you came up and said, man, I want your autograph, it means you want my personal pen it to you, right? If you, you don't want him to write my name, right? That's not an autograph, right? That's a fakeograph, right? So, but when we say we don't have the original autographs, here's what it means. When John wrote the Gospel of John, we don't have John's original document. We don't have it. It was a long, stinking time ago. But what we do have are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of what John did write. And what we do is we compare all those copies together. And when we compare them, we're able to get back really, really, really close to the original document by comparing them. And that's what these translations are. So when we read it in English, when we read an English translation, it is the translator's best educated guess to give you the original idea. And what's interesting is when you do compare different versions of the Bible, they might have a little bit of a difference in the word type they use, the verbiage, but they essentially say the same thing. We get hung up about stupid stuff. We'll get to some of the stupid stuff in a minute. But let me give you a definition then of this idea of canon. I think uh, Britannica got it right. They said the term canon is from the Hebrew Greek, meaning cane. It's a measuring rod. It, it's used in Christian use this way. It means the norm or the rule of faith. And around the fourth century, that's around 300 A.D., a whole bunch of the early church fathers got together and they began to reference and say, which books are authoritative? Which books are the canon with the New Testament? Now, of the 66 books, okay, the 39 books, okay, which is the Old Testament, by the time of Jesus' life, when Jesus is walking the earth, you know, first century, they're already founded. We already know these 39 books are the accepted books. And so that process was already in play with Jesus. Now, let me give you some confidence on why you can actually trust that and why you can adjust and actually have uh, confidence in your Old Testament scriptures. And the first thing is this. When you look at that, we had the, I'm, I'm jumping all around, by the way. I know she's looking at my notes. You're like, where are you? This is going to be off the cuff. I don't know what I'm going to do or might go an hour and a half preaching, Bucky. But we're, we're going to get it done and we're going we're to do this, okay? But here's what I want you to see. The idea of this canon, especially the Old Testament canon, was already sealed by the time of Jesus' day, which I think is amazing. And I'm going to come back to that. But why, is, why I want to preach this message to you and do this is you are going to run into friends at some point. They're going to question the Bible. If you haven't yet, you're going to run into them. Maybe you've had questions yourselves. And that's why this topic is important to me. Uh, one of the scholars that I like to read, let me read, read to you what he wrote. It's a guy named Kruger, not Freddy Kruger, different guy, Kruger, okay? We'll get to him in a second. He said, the dominant view today is that the New Testament is an extrinsic phenomenon. That's a, you can do egg for that, okay? Extrinsic means outside. I'll tell you about that in a second. A later ecclesiastical, that's another egg for you. I'll tell you what that one is. Um, development imposed on, on the book originally written by another purpose. So, so here's what he's saying. Let me break these fancy theological terms down. Current scholars, when they look at the scriptures, here's what they say. The church came along one day, extrinsic, outside, not inside, and they decided which books they would pick to put in your Bible because it fit their political agenda. This is the predominant view. 
among many scholars that are supposed to be biblical scholars. It is not the only view, but it is the predominant view. And, and I'm going to show you why that's not true today. And I'm going to show you that you can actually have confidence in what God's given you, not only based on your own reason, but based on the actual scriptures will tell you that. So let me tell you why uh, this works. So the first thing I want you to know is that God revealed himself through the prophets. Does anybody know what a prophet is? Come on, this is interactive. Truth teller. So a prophet unveils or gives the truth. So in the old days before we had the scriptures, how did a prophet work, Miss Julia? So they lived out their life. Then God said, you're my prophet. You're my chosen dude. You're going to be my measuring rod. You're my measuring gal. And I'm going to send you to a group of people. And I've got a specific message. I want you to tell that group of people, right? So like with Moses, he had a specific message. He was supposed to tell the people coming out of exile. You follow me? So here's the way it worked. A prophet was commissioned by God. And the prophet would usually unveil, tell things that hadn't happened yet. They would actually give a foretelling of something. If the prophet was wrong, what happened to the prophet? They stoned him. I'm not talking about like getting stoned. I'm talking like they killed him, okay? They stoned him. So a pretty high measuring stick. You were wrong, you died. So once that prophet had given a prophecy and it had been known as true, and they said, that's a real prophet, that's a true prophet, almost always as a response to the prophet, then there was scripture. There was a book that followed that the prophet wrote or put into place. And then the community would examine that because they saw the prophet, they knew the prophet, they lived with the prophet. And then after they looked at it, they said, does that match up? And if it matched up and it was authoritative, it was still coming from God, then they would put it in the canon, they put it in the Bible. So the 39 books that you got in the Old Testament, by the time of Jesus, were already in place. In fact, look at what Hebrews says about this process. If you've got a Bible, you can open up Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. We'll put it on the screen back here too. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through what? The prophets, at many times and in various ways, okay? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him he made the universe. So all the Old Testament was through the prophets. Then Jesus comes along, this is the idea of the New Testament, and this is how we get something new. God, now this process repeats, God reveals through Jesus his plan for salvation to save the entire world through the person of Jesus. Jesus declares this, lives the perfect life as a perfect human being, sacrifices his life for you on the cross, right? Is raised three days later from the dead, we're going to talk about in a moment. And because of what he's done, we have now an ability to have a living relationship with God because of what Jesus has purchased that's the prophet, that's the message, but Jesus is unique because he's God in the flesh. He's not only a prophet, he's also God in the flesh. And when he reveals this, he gathers these knuckleheads around him called apostles or disciples, and they begin to write about it. Same thing that happened in the Old Testament, prophet, writing, acceptance. This happens in the New. Jesus, apostles, writings, okay? So that's the idea of what we call Scripture. This is where Scripture comes from. Now, to give you some context of this, okay, of the 39 books you've got in the Old Testament, it started in 1400 BC. That's a long stinking time ago. And they wrote all the way up to 430 BC. So, about a thousand years it took to write the Old Testament. Um, we'll get to the New Testament in a second, but the New Testament, ironically, was decades in comparison. 
which is uh, something that's pretty cool. A historian by the name of Josephus, this guy uh, was a historian, and he said in Jesus' time, he lived when Jesus was alive, and he wrote historical books. So outside the Bible, he said all 39 books of the Old Testament were actually put into play at the time of 400 B.C., he uses the word Artaxerxes, and it's a whole fancy thing of who was ruling. But he says all of it was in play. The 39 books you got, they were sealed. They were in there. They were accepted. In fact, here's something that should, shouldn't surprise you but might surprise you. If you were to walk into a Jewish synagogue today and you were to take your Old Testament Bible and you compared it, you would find the exact same books. They've been that solid and that and going that long for that many years. Another dynamic that might surprise you, there was a cool thing called um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, Caves of Qumran. This is a cool place where there was a group of people that were monks and they were hanging out. They didn't like the world. Sound familiar? And they were hanging out. They were in a little place near the Dead Sea and they collected books and they would pray and they'd read the books. They'd read their scriptures. Well, when they, they found all of their writings in 1949, it was 49, let me double check, my source... She'll tell me if I'm wrong in the back. Yep, she said, oh, 46. It was 46 when they found the first one. Sorry, it was over a group of time. But correct me if I'm wrong. It's okay, Sherry, if, you like, if I miss my note, okay? So here's the deal. They found these books, and they found all the Old Testament books alongside of everything else they'd written. They found a scroll of Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, and they took the scroll, which was written, copied at the same time that Jesus was alive, and they compared it to a modern translation of the Bible today, and guess how many differences were found? Zero. I'm telling you, there is a divine process by which that God has purposed your Bible to be able to be to you. Now, this is dealing with the Old Testament, okay? So we've been dealing with the Old Testament. Now, let me tell you what Paul had to say about the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, some of you memorized this, right? That all Scripture is what? God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped to every good work. Now, two, if you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible app, two words you want to look at real careful, underline, circle, highlight, are all scripture and God breathed. They're very significant. Here's why they're significant. Paul's referring to the Old Testament when he says this. And what he's saying is scripture, he uses a unique word. It's the word graphe. Now, in modern times, what do people do when they want to tag something? They put some graffiti on something, don't they? Same root. Graphe was the idea of writing. Okay? And there's the idea of putting it down in some way of permanence. Okay? And not only was it a permanence, it had a special meaning. They would use a different word for just a writing. They would only use this word graphe when they were talking about something sacred. Something that was infused with the very presence and wisdom of God. So Paul's saying, I'm using the most sacred stinking word I got about religious writing. All that word. And then he says is God breathed. And that word's never been used before up to this point. So what Paul does, he says, I want to take two words and I'm going to slam them together that have never been put together before. So he takes the word for God in Greek, theos, and then he takes the word, right, for breathe, which is, you'll love that word, that's the word pneuma. We get the word pneumonia from that. We got a lot of that going around right now, right, which is infection of the lung. He takes the two of those words together. He says, it's God breathe. Literally, that God breathe his essence, his wisdom, and his very character into scripture. And when you're looking for real scripture, you'll find it. You'll find his essence. You'll find the very breath of who God is. And Paul's saying, this is sacred writings. This is what we're looking for. Now, why this is important is most Bible scholars, where they're screwed up is their faith, not their wisdom. It's their faith. 
what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to use our intellect to come to this book, this collection of books. And outside of them, extrinsically, we're going to say which ones we think are authoritative and which ones we think aren't. We do that with our faith, don't we? I like this aspect of Christianity. I don't like this one. I'll follow this one. I think I'll ignore this one, okay? That's what they're doing. They become the external authority. But real scripture is intrinsically breathed with the essence of God. That means we can't give it authority. We can't say anything about it. But what we can do is discover the aroma of scripture. And when we discover it, yep, that smells of God. And then, nope, that smells of something else, right? You smelled that, haven't you? That's the essence of scripture. And that's literally what Paul is saying about this. That's why, look at what he says in Matthew 28. So I want to give this to you, why this idea of authority and scriptures having the authority intrinsic is so important. Because Jesus comes in Matthew 28, right? After he's been raised from the dead, look what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. The living word, by the way, is what Jesus is called. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you to the very end of age. So when you come to the New Testament, here's what happened. Jesus shows up, and he gives this authoritative teaching that no one's ever seen before. You read that in the scriptures? This guy doesn't teach like the rabbis. He actually teaches with authority. Why does he teach with authority? Because he's literally... God, he is the authority. And they could smell it on him. He's different. There's something unique. And he gathers these 12 apostles around him. We can go into some of the complexity of that. And he teaches them for about three and a half years everything that he wants you and I to know. And as they begin to spread that word, they begin to share that through church planting and through sharing with who Jesus is. And the early church desperately wanted to follow Jesus' teaching, don't you? You don't want to follow Larry's teaching, do you? That will lead you astray, I'm going to tell you right now. But you want to follow Jesus' teaching. And so they knew that Jesus had imparted his authority to the apostles. And those apostles were teaching. And initially they taught mainly orally, not through written form. Why did they do that? Because most people couldn't read. These were, these were blue-collar people, man. These are fishermen. These are carpenters. These are normal people, not like the eggheads, okay? These are normal people. And so what they would do is they would teach them through oral teaching, which is why one of the things that almost precedes even the written form of Scripture, we have something called the Apostles' Creed. Oh, you all know it. Does anybody still know it? So did you know that the Apostles' Creed is broken into 12 sections? Did you know the reason it's broken into 12 sections is because traditionally we believe that each of the 12 original apostles, excluding the one that betrayed Jesus, the one that replaced him, all gave one statement. Let me go through it with you. We'll put it on the screen for you. So if you remember, as I believe in God, almighty, maker of, that's one of the apostles gave that thought. Then the next one, and in his only son, our now, do you hear? Now, before we go forward, do you hear the teaching? Do you smell it? It's all about Jesus and what God was doing, right? Now, keep going. Who was of the Holy Spirit, born of the 
Anybody remember saying this when they were growing up? You love God. I remember rattling that sucker off, right? You know, it was that we just said it because we had to say it. But look at the theology. Look at the depth that's there that you're being taught. The Holy Spirit, the one who spiritually lives in the church and in his people. That Jesus was born of a virgin. Why born of a virgin? Because that way he's not tainted by sin. He doesn't get the seed of Adam. Go, go on. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. This is the idea of what Jesus went through, right? He atoned for our sin. He actually died for us. He was actually buried. This wasn't like he waned. He died and went into the tomb. Then what happens? He descended into hell, which is Sheol. On the third day, this is what the church died for, was the idea of Jesus' resurrection. So here's the theology of the resurrection and the theology that he descended in every way into the land of the dead to pay for completely everything that you and I would pay for. Keep going, or should have paid for. He ascended into and is seated at the, which means he's equal to the father. There's another theological truth that's here. Keep going. And we'll come one day to judge so for those of you older, the quick and the dead, right? I never figured that out. When I first heard that, I thought it sounded like an old Western, quick and the dead, pow, you know? I just, that was weird for me as a young Christian. But the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. I believe in the, oh, heck yeah. I believe in the, keep going. Now, when you hear this one, people go, I don't know, I like that one. Catholic church just means universal church. It means the big church. It means the big C, not the little C, okay? The communion of, that means all y'all sitting here now believe in this kind of gathering. Keep going. The forgiveness of the life. Keep going. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And the word amen, in case you didn't know in Latin, just means so be it, right? All right, cool stuff. Now, why do I, why didn't, you're like, man, this is weird. We're, in a, we're kind of a pseudo-Baptist church doing liturgical stuff. The, the Apostles' Creed was given orally so that the church would know what they should have been taught and what they should have received. And it was taught orally because that small thing, anybody can memorize. And then after a while, what actually happens is they start writing stuff down about Jesus because they realize something. I don't know if you've gotten this point. As you get older, you start forgetting stuff, don't you? Y'all with me? I tell people I got some timers now. It's not quite Alzheimer's, but sometimes I forget stuff. And I need to write it down. As the apostles got older, they were like, you know what? We need to write down the teachings of Jesus to preserve them for the next generation. And so they start to write. So here's how that would have looked. Paul would have said, hey, I just planted that church over in Corinth. That is one jacked up, messed up place. By the way, Corinth was like Vegas, okay, in their day. And it was that bad. And so Paul had to write them a lot because they were screwed up. He wrote two letters. So when he would write to him, he'd write a letter saying, hey, I love y'all, can't wait to see you, but y'all are stupid in these matters. That's literally how Paul writes. He does it much nicer in the Greek. And then he sends it to him and says, fix it before I get there. If I get there and you ain't fix it, I'll fix it. And if Apostle has to come and fix it, it's not going to be pretty, okay? That's essentially how a lot of Paul's writings go. Those are called letters. Then there's something called gospels, which are good news. They're about the life of Jesus. We have four of those that are authorized, but they're not the only. There's other gospels. Why only these four were included? We're going we're to get to that, I hope. 
And so these letters start to be written. And so in your New Testament, there's four types of writings. Gospels, that's good news about Jesus' life. History, that's the book of Acts. Then there's letters, that's Paul writing to the church. And there's something called apocryphal, which means the end times. That's Revelation. And all of these documents are written between 40 and 90 AD. So over a 50-year period, everything's written. Not a 1,000. 50 years. So it's concise. And it's close enough. It's within one generation of the life of Jesus. So the life of Jesus, the people that hung out with him the closest, begin to write within less than one generation. And after they write that, all these writings go to different places. So let's say I'm in a church called Laodicea. I'd love to see you name your church that. And I find out that Corinth over here, they got a letter from Paul because they didn't call it 1 Corinthians. They just knew they had a letter from Paul. So I'd say, hey, send a scribe over there, get that sucker copy, bring it back here to Laodicea because we want to read it because that's one of Paul's letters. So they'd go over there and they'd copy it and they'd bring it back. And then what we have now today are the copies, the copies, the copies, the copies, the copies. Then we examine those and when we put them all together, we get a really, really, really accurate picture of what the original author wrote to the original church and what they intend to say. Now, why did they include it? Well, let's, let's get to that. I'm gonna run out of time. Where's Bucky? He, I'm surprised he hasn't yelled for a prayer adjournment yet, okay? So I'm getting there, Bucky. So the Bible itself, like the apostles, affirms itself. Remember I told you that the authority is in it. We don't give it the authority. It's in it. That means the Bible approves of itself. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture, same word here, by the way, graph A, says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He's quoting, by the way. So Paul's quoting Deuteronomy at that point. And then he says, and the worker deserves his wages. You probably heard that one, right? But what you may not realize is he's actually quoting Luke chapter 10. So Paul, who says all the Old Testament, that's God breathed, and I'm going to use the word, graph A, remember that one? Put my tag on it. Then he comes in here, he says, hey, by the way, he's talking to this young pastor named Timothy. He says, not only is the Old Testament scripture, same word, but so is what Luke wrote the New Testament. So now we've got this idea of these are sacred writings. And then you got these dudes, I love this name. Like I said, we got goofy names for everything in um, theology. You got these guys called the Patristic Fathers, which just means they're the guys that came right after the apostles. Does that make sense? So you got Jesus, then you get the apostles, and then they've got some young and spiritually, okay? And they got really funky names. Y'all would love to try to pronounce some of them. But these guys are all Greek for the, for the most part, some Latin. You know. But they're the disciples of the apostles. And guess what they start to do? They start to, they write. And they start writing. And they start writing so much to other churches and other people. And now they're under oppression. And as they're writing, guess who they're quoting? The apostles and Jesus. And how did they know what he said? Because they'd hung out with the people that hung out with Jesus. And they're quoting scripture. In fact, every book that you have in the New Testament is quoted by one of the patristic fathers. Now, there are only two generations away. Now, this is what blows me away. Then you go to Wikipedia and you'll read about some, some geeky PhD who is so high on their education and they'll use something called high textual criticism to come to the scriptures and tell you, I don't think he wrote that. I don't think that should be in there. They're 2,000 years removed. They're a goofball. I'd rather have the person that's only one to two generations removed tell me which book should have been there and which book shouldn't have been there. 
That just makes sense to me. In fact, let me give you some of those people. I didn't put this down, but there's a guy named Eusebius. He was between 320 and 330. He put in 22 of the books you got as affirmed books. He only questioned five. Sorry, Danny, he questioned James because he didn't like how applicable James was. He questioned Jude because he wasn't sure of the authorship. He questioned 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. So he did question those five books. And by the way, these are the only five books you'll find that were ever questioned heavily in the New Testament. All the other 22, universally accepted by the early church. All these books are coming together now. They're like, okay, which ones are scripture? Which ones do we accept? There's a, a, a group of people to get together. It's kind of like a Super Bowl party, but it's called a Synod. It's called Laodicea. So they get together in 363. Now they've got 26 books. They say, you know, we've looked at these now. We're only down to one we question. Want to guess which one they're questioning still? Revelation. They were like, ah, oh, that thing is crazy cool, ain't it? <laughs> so yeah, they're like, that thing's all over the place. John was having an acid trip when he wrote that, right? So they're still questioning the apocryphal book. But then they look at it close. And this all happens through open debate. Like they're really debating which ones are scripture, which ones have the essence, that smell of the very presence of God is wisdom. And they're looking at for certain things. In fact, let me tell you what they're looking for. As they're looking at these books, I'm skipping ahead. Don't, don't get lost with me. Hang with me, Sherry. Okay, as, as, as they're looking really for three main things. I don't even know where it went in my notes. I'll just give it to you from my memory. So they're looking for three main things. Does it have apostolic authority? What does that mean? Did an apostle write it? Or did someone who was related closely to the apostle write it? That's one of the things they're looking for. Does it contradict known teaching about the character and goodness of God or Jesus? So for instance, in the Gospel of Thomas, which was not canonized, which you can still read, go ahead and read it. It is a goofy book, okay? You got Jesus one day as a kid. He freaks out, doesn't like this other kid. They're hanging out at school one day. He's like, I don't like you. He kills him. Zap, like Shazam. Shazam, bam, kills the kid. Then Jesus feels guilty about it and says, oh, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. Raise you from the dead. Okay, that's in the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah. So the early church fathers are reading there like, yep, that don't belong. Because there's another one in Peter where Jesus walks out of the tomb 60 feet in the air, okay? He's 60 feet tall now. I don't know how that happened. But so when they're reading these other Gospels, they're like, these don't fit. They don't have the truth. The essence, the smell of the very presence of God. So they exclude them because they're discovering what's true, not adding to what is true. Does that make sense? That's why Revelation says that at the end. The other thing they were looking for was how widely was the book distributed? So like you show up one day, you know, and you're like at one of these, they call them synods or councils, and they've got these books and they're saying that we think this book, and somebody says, I like this gospel, Mary, can we get it in? And John's like, nope. So, and somebody says, well, how many of y'all have the gospel of Mary? Well, only that goofball. Well, then it's probably not a good idea to put it in because the teachings of Jesus were widely distributed. They were spread. So they were looking for it. If it's in all these other churches, that means there was truth in it. There was the essence in it. So those three things, they debated actually for about a hundred and some years and had pretty good consensus, but they didn't land the plane until later 300s. They finally land it and they say, these are the authorized 27 books of what we now call the New Testament canon. And so here's why I want you to understand this. When people tell you, well, man just arbitrarily picked which books went here and which books didn't. It's not true. Man definitely was looking for the essence and truth of God. And as man discovered the essence and the truth of God, 
They preserved it for us so we could have direct access to God. Now, why is this even more important? You don't need me to have direct access to God. What do you need? That's all you need. You need the scriptures. These authorized scriptures that are before you and I, this sealed canon, this is the truth of God, the word of God. And because of that, when you read it, you have direct access to the apostles' teaching and to the truth of the character and the goodness of who God is. Now, my job is to, in the most creative and fun way, which sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, try to present it to you to help you even get more excited about it and to make sure that when we're equipped as a church, we're equipped with God's word. So, so that's why this is so important. I love this out of Hebrews. Last scripture I got for you is, for the word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged or double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, right? And this one will say joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude or intent of the heart. Miss Julia is new King James, by the way. She told me that makes her progressive. That's right. To interpret it, that's all we need is the Holy Spirit. Because he's the one who infused the essence, the very essence of God in the word. And so the reason I gave you that as the last verse is, think about what that does in our lives as we read it. So here's my last thought for you. So Bucky doesn't have to yell about prayer through adjournment. Got you, Bucky. I'm with you, brother. Okay, it's, it's, it's time to eat. Okay, here's my last thought. Really, what to happen is that God's word would get into you. So get into God's word, so God's word can get into you. You realize they go like that, right? They're interchangeable. Did I give you that as a last thought? There you go. So this week, get into the word, get into the Bible, so it can get into you. Because the very essence and presence of God, when it gets in us, it changes us. He transforms us. And by the way, not because I gave it authority, but because God's very essence did. And that's how we got the 66 books of the New Testament and Old Testament. God infused his very presence and life into them. And mankind, in their desire to know God and know God's character and goodness, discovered these and God preserved them. One last thing that I'll give you real quick that's kind of fun. I skipped over a bunch of stuff because I knew I was going to go long and I knew that Bucky's going to tell me he'll dock my pay for every minute I go over. True, Bucky? I think he just told me that. That's like a new thing that came from the council. But I just want to give you this one thing. Of all of the um, pieces that we have, let me just give this piece. I think this is incredible. And I've got it as a write-up for you at the welcome desk. We have over 56 to 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's a lot. If you were to compare that against Plato and Aristotle and all of their writings, they're in the hundreds. So it's 50 times almost we have Greek writings compared to other Greek writings of that day, which means the Bible was the most preserved document in all history. Now, that's either because it's just unique or because God's hand was on it, right? Another thing you find out, 10,000 of that was actually translated into the Latin language. So now you're at 15,000 early documents that we can examine. Not only that, there were a lot of other people from other language groups, Syriac, the Egyptians, they translated into their language too. That adds another 10,000 documents that we can examine of the New Testament. And then it gets even crazy. Remember I told you about the patristic fathers? Over one million writings that they wrote about the New Testament. So when people say, man, I don't believe that book, they've never looked at the evidence because it is the most well-preserved document in all history. And when you start to read it, 
It's infused with the very living presence of the living God, and you can smell it. You can sense it. So a couple things and following up with you as we get ready to depart. Uh, if this has interested you, I've got a couple things in the back for you. So if you go to the welcome desk today, some of you that are really geeky, some of you are like, okay, that was enough for me, I'm good. Um, some of you are like, I want to go deeper. So in the back, as you go out, here's seven reasons you can trust scripture that came out of some of the teaching today. And you can grab that article and take it with you if you want. If you want to see, if you're like, I heard you, pastor, but I don't believe you. Because, you know, I'm from, what's that state where you got to show me? Missouri. Missouri says, show me. Okay. Here's the actual documents. So if you want, that's also back there, all the Greek manuscripts and where they came from and how we got copies. So that's another way for you to be able to just read up on that. And then if you're really geeky and you're like, I am an egghead, give it to me. You can't go too deep for me, John. Yeah. Then here's, here's one of the best books ever written on the canonization of the New Testament. It's called The Question of Canon. And it's written by a guy named Michael Kruger. And this book will hit every detail. It'll give you exceptionally great confidence in the Bible that you've got in your hands. And you can believe it because God breathed it, right? So that's a great book. I also will be sending out an email. So make sure if you haven't filled out a connect card, we've got your email. I'll be sending you, for those of you that are like, I'm not a reader, I'm a watcher and a listener. I'll be sending out some YouTube videos if you're interested that show all this stuff in details. So again, you can research it for yourself. But I can't do that if I don't have your email. In fact, if you've got our app, it already hit your app about seven minutes ago, all the links. A couple things uh, following up. Um, if you want to scan that, that is the Bible app. It is free. I like free. And that'll help you to get into God's word for free. Another thing that um, I'll be releasing to you today, if you want to go deeper with this kind of wisdom about the Bible and how it's put together, is Right Now Media actually has a link um, that I'll be sending to you. That's the link. If you don't have Right Now Media, that is also free. Church pays for a subscription. If you don't scan that one, there's scans at the welcome desk you can get. And uh, one of the guys that's um, on Right Now Media, fascinating guy um, with the last name of Walsh, not like the artist, but he actually is an attorney and he examines the gospels as an attorney and he shows you the validity of the gospels based on how you do a criminal investigation and he does a bible study where he gives you all of the stuff and you become the actual criminal investigator to investigate the first four gospels so that's a fun bible study that we'll be sending out through right now media it's just a fun way for you again for you to engage so cool stuff huh was that too egg-headed no it was all right all right I'm going to pray God's blessing every second. Hey, make sure that you fill out the Connect card. Put the Connect card in the offering box. If you call Grace your home, thank you for how you continue to support uh, the church financially. You can put your financial offering in the offering box. I know that today is the last day to collect for Lottie Moon. Yeah, if I don't say that, Miss Julia will hit me with her purse. So make sure if you, she won't. That's a joke. It's a joke. Sarcasm, right? Danny keeps telling me I need recovery because of sarcasm. But you can put your offering for Lottie and your normal offering in the offering box in the back. Let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. And then once we pray, you're dismissed. Have a great Sunday. Father in heaven, thank you for each and every person here. Thank you for the truth of your word. God, in a day that we live in where truth is being questioned everywhere we turn, people don't even know the truth. They can't connect to the truth. They think it's their truth. We're so thankful that your truth has been placed in our hands and it's so accessible to us. Would you please give us the wisdom and the spiritual energy to read your word through devotions every day? And as we read your word and we put it into ourselves, 
allow it to change our hearts to look more like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, let us share his love to each and every person we're connected to this week. And all God's people said, amen. Y'all have a blessed